passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Well, good morning again, everyone. Uh, If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to the book of Haggai. Now, if you were with us last week, you may remember that we were going to start Malachi this week. And uh, it's been a rough week uh, for my family. Um, This sickness that's been going around has hit us as well. So uh, my wife, being infinitely wise, said, you're not preaching from Malachi this week. You're going to find a sermon that you have preached before, and you are going to go through that. So I pulled out the second sermon that I ever preached at our Spirit Lake campus, uh, which some of you may remember, uh, others of you, uh, most of you probably don't remember. And I will assure you that it hopefully is better than it was uh, all those years ago. And so uh, we're going to be in the book of Haggai. And uh, in addition to uh, what I just explained, I think it's appropriate for us to look at Haggai because it is, uh, in in one sense, setting the context, setting uh, really the stage for what we're going to be studying uh, in the next few weeks from the book of Malachi. So Haggai is one of the shortest books in the Bible. If you're not sure where it is, an easy way to find it is to find the first book of the New Testament, Matthew. Matthew, and just go back a couple books. Uh, go back three books. It is a part of the minor prophets at the end of the Old Testament. Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, and then Matthew. We're going to be in Haggai chapter 1 this morning. Now, I love the book of Haggai. It's one of my favorite books in the Old Testament because even though on the surface it may seem like a very difficult book to understand, even though it may seem on the surface like it is so far removed from our context that it's not all of that relevant for us, it is actually an extremely relevant book. It is a book that speaks to us and really tells us or helps us to examine our hearts as Christians today. It doesn't just help us set the stage for Malachi, like I mentioned we're going to do. It also makes us ask the question, what are our priorities? What are our priorities? You see, Americans can have pretty perplexing priorities. Our culture seems to emphasize secondary things at the expense of primary things. And we have a tendency to elevate things like work or sports or image or feeling good or entertainment and on and on and on. All of these things above primary things. Knowing God, delighting in Him, pursuing Him as a family serving him, all of these things can be pushed to secondary status in our culture. Now, you may be thinking that I am going to use one of the church's favorite weapons throughout history, and that is guilt, uh, to make you volunteer more at church. After after all, we can uh, feel like we are being forced to add God to our already way too busy lives. We have hundreds of things on our schedule, and just by being a parent or a husband or a wife or trying to be involved in our community, we can feel like our schedules are filled to the brim, and we can't possibly find any margin to give more time to the church. And believe it or not, I uh, can relate. Last spring, I was meeting with some other pastors from our denomination, and we were wrestling during this, uh, this meeting, we were wrestling with ways that we can be intentional in building relationships with non-Christians in our community. And the, uh, 
go-to answer of just spend more time in the community uh, really just fell short or rung, rung hollow for us. And, and there was a reason that it got brought up more and more by these pastors. And that was something that I could resonate with. I spend so much time at work. I can't imagine going from a long day at work, going home and telling my wife and my kids, my kids wanting to play with me, my wife wanting a break from the kids and saying, all right, well, now I'm going to go build relationships in the community for Jesus. Good luck. When we talk about priorities, it can seem like we are talking about something that's overly simplified, or it's an either-or. We have to add something to our already-packed schedules, and we are left feeling bad. But that said, guilt can be a really powerful motivator. It can lead to external changes, at least for a while. We will volunteer at church. We will do things like get involved in a life group. We'll stick around for a Crosswinds University class after the service. But unless there is a heart change, unless there is a change that starts in our hearts with who we are, any sort of guilt-induced change will be superficial and temporary. You see, the struggle with priorities is the same struggle that the people of Jerusalem had in Haggai's day. The people in Haggai's day were doing many good things. The things they were doing weren't bad. They were concerned with making a living for their family. They were concerned with making sure they actually had food on the table. They were concerned with making sure that they had houses that actually functioned as houses and protected them from the outside elements. These are good things, things that actually God commands them to do in the Old Testament. And yet, at some point, there was this subtle shift in the thinking of the people of Israel. They they shifted from thinking of these things as as a, a part of what God has called them to do, to doing them instead of what God had called them to do. And this morning, we're going to be looking at that. We're going to be looking at the book of Haggai chapter 1. There's four parts to this story, and it's really God's charge to the people of Israel as they are in this context. And as we begin, I want us to explore the context of this book and understand where Haggai takes place in, in Israel's history, and by extension, it sets the stage for us next week in Malachi. And then I want us to look at the progress that we see from God's people as God speaks to them and calls them to consider their ways. And so as we approach God's word, let's pray once more. God, we, uh, we come before you again, just in desperate need of you. I come before you with a, with a strong realization that any time the church talks about priorities, it can so often be used, uh, guilt can so often be used as a weapon And while guilt can be a good thing when it leads to conviction and heart change, at the same time, I don't want this to be a conviction that comes from me, but instead a conviction that comes from your Holy Spirit. And so, Holy Spirit, we do ask that you would come. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come and examine our hearts, examine our lives, reveal to us where we can follow you more faithfully. That's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, I invite you to follow along. Uh, Haggai chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, 
In the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Let's stop right there. Some moving stuff, isn't it? But what seems to be an insignificant start to this book is actually a very crucial beginning to this book to help us understand where this takes place in Israel's history. In fact, this is a unique uh, few verses here because they tell us the exact day of Haggai's first sermon. Haggai's sermon took place on August 20th, 29th, 520 B.C., August 29th, 520, uh, 520 B.C. This isn't just some made-up story. This is uh, an event that took place over 2,500 years ago. You see, it can be easy for us to look at the stories of the Bible and see them as so far removed from us, from our own context, that they can be unhelpful for us. But by giving us the exact date that this sermon is preached, Haggai is rooting this book in history. He's rooting this book in history, and he's reminding us that the people of Israel, even though we're separated from them by culture and by time and by distance, the people that Haggai were writing, was writing to were people just like you and me. As we will see from this book, they were people that were concerned with their livelihoods. They were putting forth every effort to make sure that they had enough food in the harvest that they would be able to feed their families for another year. Surely each and every one of us can relate to that desire within each and every one of us. A desire to make sure that we can provide for our families, that our family will be secure for another year. And just like Each of us, they were concerned with their home life as well, whether they rented or whether they owned their homes, whether we rent or whether we owned our homes, just like they did in their fields. The people of Israel spent a lot of extra time making sure their houses were secure. They were repairing and building their houses ever since returning from the exile years before. None of us want to live in a dangerous house where the roof is threatening to cave in at any moment. None of us want to live in a house with holes in the wall that expose us to the outside elements. And the people of Israel were the exact same way. And so when they weren't working in the fields, they were working on their homes. They were repairing their homes. And you might be saying, well, how do we know that they were broken down, dilapidated homes, houses, Why did they have to spend so much time fixing these? Well, let's remember the context of of where this takes place in Israel's history. And and to understand that, we're going to go back to the very beginning of Israel's history as a nation, to the time of Moses. Moses lived about 950 years before Haggai did in the year 1440 B.C. 1440 B.C., Moses led the people of Israel out of Egypt during the Exodus and led them to the brink of the promised land. And after they escaped Egypt, God made a covenant with the people of Israel. You see, one of the fascinating things about this covenant, about this agreement that is made between Israel and God, is that God promises to be their God. 
He promises to dwell among them. And so when we look at the book of Exodus, the last 15 chapters are all about how to make sure they build God's dwelling place the right way. I'll be honest, it's not exactly riveting stuff. But the amount of time that's spent in Exodus tells us how important it was to God that his dwelling place was made perfectly, right exactly to his standards. Because God was going to dwell among the people of Israel. Now fast forward a couple hundred years to the time of David. David is a second king of the people of Israel. And during his kingship, he desires to build a temple for God. Since the days of Moses, God has been dwelling in this tent. And so David wants him to have a residence that's a little more permanent. God has provided permanent residences for the people of Israel, and so he desires for God to have a permanent residence in Israel. And God says, no, don't worry about it, but your son Solomon will build me a temple. And Solomon does just that. Around the year 960 BC, Solomon builds a temple. The temple becomes the defining location of God's presence among the people of Israel. If you've ever noticed, as you've read through the the Old Testament, the emphasis on the land the emphasis on Jerusalem is because those two things symbolize God's presence with his people, God's blessing for his people. So Solomon builds the temple in 960 BC and things get really bad pretty quickly after that. Solomon dies. The the kingdom of Israel splits into two kingdoms, one in the north, one in the south. The the kingdom in in the north, uh, about 250 years passed since the founding of the temple and they are destroyed by a nation called Assyria. The nation in the south survives for another 175 years or so. And then they, Judah, are destroyed by the nation of Babylon in the year 586 BC. What we read in the prophets is that God continuously comes to this nation and tells them to repent, to repent of their wickedness, of their moral failings, to repent of their idolatry, and they refuse to do so. And so God brings them into exile. In the year 586 BC, Jerusalem and Judah and the temple are all destroyed. And the people of Israel are brought into exile. And this temple, this symbol of God's presence with the people, is no longer there. And because the temple is destroyed, some of God's people begin to wonder whether they are still God's chosen people. They begin to wonder whether God is still with them. And things, honestly, on the surface, don't look all that good. The temple And Jerusalem, the places that represent God's presence among the people, are both gone. Both of them are destroyed. The closest comparison I can think of today is if every single copy of the Bible that we had was gone, was destroyed. One of the easiest ways or one of the key ways for us to fellowship with God, gone. And that's the way it was for Israel during this time. During the exile... The remnant, the people who were living in Babylon, actually became relatively successful while in Babylon. 
The book of Daniel takes place during this time. It tells us that Daniel becomes one of the leaders in Babylon, and and he wasn't alone. Israel actually became relatively successful in Babylon. They gained a lot of wealth. They gained a lot of possessions in Babylon. They were secure in Babylon. From the outside, it looked like God had blessed them. Things had improved for them. But that wasn't necessarily the case from a spiritual perspective. About 50 years after the exile, about 50 years after 586 BC, a new king comes to power. He has a different way of dealing with all of the nations that are subjugated to him. He says, instead of bringing people out of their land and forcing them to live somewhere where they don't know the language and don't know the culture and they have to worship new gods, what I'm going to do is I'm going to allow these nations to go back to their homes worship their gods, and live life the way they used to. The only requirement is that they pay me a tribute. And so he says to the people of Israel living in Babylon, if you want to go back to Jerusalem, you are free to do just that. You are free to go back. You are free to build the temple. I know it's been lying in ruins for nearly 50 years, but go ahead, return if you would like. And so in the year 538 BC, that's an important date, 538 BC, a remnant from Babylon returns to Jerusalem. What's surprising is that there are only about 50,000 of them that make the return back. The majority of the people continue to live in exile, continue to live among the nations in Babylon or in Egypt or in other nations. And this tells us that those who made that journey, those that are the audience in the book of Haggai, are the spiritually devout. These are the people who are willing to sacrifice most of their material possessions. All of the security and the comfort that they've built up over decades to return back to Jerusalem. To return to hardship to return to waste and to return to ruin, all because of a promise from God. These are the spiritually mature here. They trade all of the material wealth that they have for the promise of God's presence. And so they set off from Babylon and they return back to Israel. And maybe they're wondering, is God still with us? Does he permanently abandon us? And they come back with a goal. And that goal is to rebuild the temple. In fact, that's one of the first things that they do in Jerusalem. They rebuild the temple. It takes them a couple of years. At least they rebuild the foundation of the temple. Finish that around 535 BC. And that's where the book of Haggai picks up. Haggai picks up 15 years after the people of Israel have finished building the foundation of the temple. And look at verse 2. A verse that we read moments ago. After living in the land of Israel, and after living in Jerusalem for 15 years, after finishing the foundation of the temple 15 years ago, nothing of substance has been done to the temple since then. Nothing of substance has been done to the temple that signified God's presence among them. And remember, this is the remnant that came back to build the temple. 
The remnant that came back so that God would dwell among them once, once more. And we might wonder, well, why haven't they built the temple? Why haven't they done any more work? Is it because building a temple takes a long time? Well, yes, it does take a long time. But we'll see that once they finally got around to building it, it only took them about four years to complete it. And they've been sitting on their hands for 15. Was it an issue of money? After all, it does cost a lot to build a temple. Jerusalem doesn't have a lot of wood around it that is suitable for building a temple. And so you'd have to buy and import all of this wood. So maybe it was an issue of finances. But the book of Ezra tells us that the king who allowed the people to go back actually sent them money to start the temple. So it wasn't an issue of money either. What is the issue that kept them waiting? Why is it that this people kept repeating over and over and over, it is not time to build the house of the Lord, as it says in verse 2? This is going to sound crazy, but I think the, the reason is that they were too spiritual for their own good. Or maybe a better way of saying that is that they did a really, really, really good job of justifying their inaction from Scripture. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to Jeremiah 25. Jeremiah 25 is, is written before the exile, and it tells us uh, this moment where Jeremiah is talking about the coming exile, about this time where the people of Israel will be kicked out of the land. And it says this in Jeremiah 25, verses 11 and 12. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then, after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making that land an everlasting waste. What Jeremiah is saying in those two verses is that the exile will last 70 years. It's a prophecy before the exile. The exile will last 70 years. Now, let's do some math here. Israel is brought into exile in the year 586 B.C., you subtract 70 from that, and when is the exile supposed to end? It's supposed to end in 516. But the people of Israel are allowed to go back to the land in the year 538. And they wait. And they wait. And they wait. Turns out the temple doesn't get finished until the year 516. They looked at this prophecy, and I think what they did after looking at this prophecy is they said, you know what, God said it was going to be 70 years, and we can't disobey God. We don't understand why God has brought us back to the land early, but God said the exile was going to last 70 years, and so what we're going to do is we're going to wait. We're going to wait 70 years. We're going to wait until God leads us to build the temple just like he said he would. It sounds kind of ridiculous, doesn't it? But if we look at ourselves, we do it a lot too. We can do an incredible job of justifying from the Bible or from spirituality of why we don't act, why we don't follow God as faithfully as we know we are called to do. 2,500 years may separate us from the people of Haggai's day, but we're really not all that different. You see, while these two verses may just be a date stamp, they tell us a lot about the spiritual condition of the people of Israel during this moment. 
And I think they, they tell us uh, uh, something important for us today as well. They are a reminder to us that spiritual devotion in the past, spiritual devotion in the past does not excuse us from current faithfulness. It does not excuse us from current faithfulness. Remember, this is the remnant that set off from Babylon with a passion to rebuild the temple. They set off well, and yet their priorities got wayward over time. That's what makes this story so indicting and honestly so compelling because I'm sure we can all relate. Starting with great priorities and those priorities becoming wayward or mixed over time. Just consider the people of Israel at this moment. They left everything to return to Israel. They wanted to dwell in the land of the fathers. They wanted to worship the God of their fathers. Can you imagine the passion, the zeal with which they set off toward Jerusalem? A day that they had been longing for for 40 years. And they set off, all 50,000 of them were singing and dancing in joy because they were returning home and they were going to build the temple and God was going to dwell among them once more. And then they got to Jerusalem, the city that they had prayed toward three times a day, each and every day for the last 40 years. And they set to work building the temple. But over time, Reality set in. The honeymoon period was over, and with each and every passing year, it seems like their passion for God became less and less. As they set out for Jerusalem, they were committed to rebuild the temple. By the time that they had finished the foundations of the temple, God was still their number one priority, and yet they allowed other concerns, legitimate concerns, like how are we going to survive the next two years, set in. Maybe after a few years, God slipped down to number three on their priority list. And as we will soon see, by the time of Haggai, 15 years after the foundations have been laid, the people of Israel are so concerned with little ornate decorations in their own house without even lifting a finger for God's house. The love of the world creeped back in. And change their priorities. Can you relate? Can you relate? You look to the past. You remember the joy that you had in your faith in the past. You remember your zeal. You remember your vigor. You remember the ways that you chased after God. That you hungered after him. Where you desired him. You delighted in him. You remember the nights filled with prayer. You remember the days filled with scripture. The continual pursuit of God. And now you find yourself in a place or if it's not gone, it's faded. It's a far cry of what it once was. Spiritual devotion in the past does not excuse us from current faithfulness. Let's keep reading what Haggai has to say to the people in verse 3. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. 
You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. This is where the misplaced priorities of the people of Israel really begin to show themselves. This phrase, when it says paneled houses, it's referring to the houses that Israel is rebuilding. It's describing houses that are luxurious. These are houses that have been completed, but the people of Israel continue to tinker on them, continue to improve them, continue to make them nicer and nicer. By contrast, the house of God lies in ruins. You see, in order for the people of Israel to build these paneled houses, they would have had to import wood just like they would have had to do for the temple. They paid an arm and a leg for that nice wood to make their houses look beautiful. You might be wondering, well, where'd they get that money? My guess is they borrowed it from the temple fund. They used the money that had been set aside for the temple until all of it was gone. And nothing was left. At this point, Haggai is comparing the mindset of the people of Israel during his day and age with King David centuries before. King David desired to build a house for God. God said no, but he was so determined to make sure that that house would be built that he spent so much money, so, many, so much effort raising funds for God's temple to one day be built. David decides that he's going to go on a fundraising campaign for his son to have everything he needs to build the temple when God calls him to do. In David's day and age, God tells David no, so David does all he can to raise the money for the temple. And Haggai, the people of Israel, tell God no, and then they take all the money from the temple. These people have everything backwards. Everything is backwards. And what does it amount for the people of Israel? Well, the passage that we just read tells us nothing. They've planted seed and have terrible harvests. They're running low on everything from food to drink to their money in reserve. Their clothes are wearing out as much as they try to get ahead. They never can. They never have enough. You see, despite all of their work on their own little kingdoms, they now find themselves worse off than they were before. The remnant has poured everything into their own lives, into their own material things, just trying to get by. And yet in doing so and focusing on these things, they find themselves in a place of holistic shortages. Famine is throughout the land. They have clothes that are wearing out. But at least they have nice houses, right? So what does God tell them to do? Three words. Consider your ways. Consider your ways. Take a moment and think about things. Consider your ways. What a powerful statement. Look at life over the past 15 years and something's not adding up. Consider your ways. Do you have any idea what it could be? 
Do you see what's happening for the people of Israel here? They're consumed with the material, and because they're consumed with the material, they are worried. At the same time, they're consumed with the material, and they're worried they have a shortage. And what causes them to be even more worried? Well, it's that shortage that they won't have enough. It's a downward spiral for the people of Israel. Jesus uh, addresses this in the Gospels about not worrying about having enough. I think Haggai reminds us here that when we devote our lives to security and comfort, we are left uncomfortable and insecure. When we devote our lives to security and comfort, we are left uncomfortable and insecure. So how are we to counteract this worrying that we see from the people of Israel? Well, it's by having the rightly placed priorities. God spoke to the Israelites 2,500 years ago and said, consider your ways. Take time to evaluate your life and examine your priorities. Might he be saying the same thing to us this morning? Let's continue in verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruin, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills and on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and on all their labors. You see what God is doing here? God is calling the people of Israel to action. God doesn't want verbal spirituality by himself. He wants active spirituality. I think we're inclined to the opposite because it's so much easier to verbally assent to spirituality while God desires active. His words here are clear. Enough work on your own houses. Enough trying to build up your own wealth. Get to work. In this case, get to work on the temple. Look again at verse 8. Just one phrase there. That I may be glorified. The implication of verse 8 is that when we have misplaced priorities, we are robbing God of his glory. Misplaced priorities rob God of his glory. God is glorified when we make him the focus of our lives. Not just as a duty or because it's demanded, but because we want to. God's glory in our lives is linked to where he is found on our list of priorities. Consider your ways. Are you robbing God of glory? Many of us are familiar with Eric Liddell, the Olympic runner from the early 1900s. He's made famous from uh, the movie uh, and book, Chariots of Fire. One of the best runners in the world. He refused to race his Olympic race that was held on a Sunday because of his commitment to God. Instead, he, he raced in a, a, in a different race and he actually won uh, a gold medal there. I have to be honest, the first time I heard that story, I thought uh, Eric was, uh, was kind of loopy. My thinking was like this, what gives you a platform to, to testify to the glory of God in your life, the goodness of God in your life? Winning? 
or not even competing. And my thinking, it was winning. But what creates an even bigger platform in your life to testify of God's goodness? It's when we refuse to race because of our faith. When an internationally known athlete refuses to race because of his faith, it's a move that's so countercultural. It's a move that's so at odds with our culture that seeks its own glory that the strangeness itself becomes a spectacle. And so Eric made God a priority, and God was glorified by Eric's decision. When Eric was willing to give up his chance at Olympic gold out of respect and honor to God. Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying, that you can't compete in sports that are held on Sundays. That's, that was Eric's conviction. That's not what I'm saying here. I'm saying that God is glorified by Eric's priorities. And I guarantee that right now, Eric couldn't care less about the fact that he missed out on a gold medal because he has received something infinitely more valuable, a crown of glory that he lays at Jesus' feet. Consider your ways. Are you robbing God of glory? You see, the truth is, for the people of, of Israel during Haggai's day, they were doing that. They were robbing God of glory, the glory that he was due by refusing to build the temple and only focusing on their own kingdoms. And so in those verses that we just read, we saw that God was disciplining them. It is possible that God will bring hardship, sometimes material hardship, but God will bring hardship into our lives when we neglect him. Does that mean that every single time that we face hardship, that it is a form of discipline? No. Suffering is far more complex than that. Most of it is because we live in a broken world. But God loves his people. And he's willing to discipline them as fathers. Hebrews 12 tells us this, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the, his father does not discipline? God sometimes brings hardship into our lives in order to allow us to be brought closer to him. God is a loving father, and there are times of discipline. There are times of our lives where just honestly the opposite of what our culture thinks or what we are inclined to think, it is actually a sign that he loves us. He loves us and he loves us too much to allow us to continue to play around with the world when he has something so much better in store for us. And so Haggai reminds us here at the very end of our, of our time together, when we rob God of his glory, he lovingly disciplines us as a father. When we rob God of his glory, he lovingly disciplines us as a father. And so again, Haggai encourages the people to consider their ways. And what a powerful word for us as well. As I mentioned, much of the suffering that we face in this lifetime, things such as sickness, financial hardship, persecution, all these things, it's not because God is disciplining us. It's just because we live in a broken world. We live in a world marred by sin. But we would be foolish to not look at our suffering from this lens, to not think about it. Is God disciplining me? Is God refining me? Is God trying to make me more like him? 
We would be foolish to not do what Haggai says here, to consider our ways, to take time before God, to ask that he would reveal to us our priorities, to ask if this is a season of discipline, and most of the time it's not. At least many times it's not, but it could be. And it would be a shame to miss the point of what God is trying to do in our lives. My favorite part of this story is the end of chapter 1. Throughout the beginning of chapter 1, first 11 verses, Haggai lays into the people of Israel for the mixed-up priorities. Over and over again, he says, your priorities are wrong. You're robbing God of glory, that God is, is punishing you, or God is disciplining you is a better word for what you have neglected. And then we get to the end of, of chapter 1. And what's surprising is that the people listen. They actually do consider their ways. And they repent. They repent of their glory stealing, their mixed priorities, and they choose to to pursue God. Verse 12 tells us that a few months later, Haggai speaks again, and notice his words in verse 13. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. I am with you. This is the first time, the first time since Israel has been in exile or has returned from exile. It's the first time in 66 years that God has spoken to the people and said, I am with you. I am with you. Imagine the encouragement. Imagine the relief. God is with them. The reality is God had never left them. God had been with them in Babylon because he was gracious. God was with them when they returned to Jerusalem with great zeal because he is gracious. God was with them when they laid the foundations of the temple. And God had been with them for the last 15 years when they wandered, when they strayed, when they began to ignore God. The same is true for you too. God is with you. God loves you too much to abandon you, no matter how your priorities may look, whether they are in line with God's priorities or if they need to be examined and changed. God is with you. God will not leave you as orphans. Indeed, it is God's presence in our lives that gives us the strength to realign our priorities. It is God's presence in our lives that serves as a confidence that he will help us to consider our ways, to examine our hearts. And it is God's presence in our lives that can melt hard hearts like the people of Israel 2,500 years ago, and God can melt our hearts today. And really, that's what this text is all about. Haggai is urging the Israelites, but now the Spirit, I think, is urging us this morning to focus our priorities on God and his kingdom, for he is with us, for he is with us. So consider your ways. Take a few moments as an individual or as a family to examine your lives, to examine what your lives say about your greatest priority. Consider your ways. 
And then with confidence, remember that the Lord is with you in anything that he calls you to do. Let's pray. Lord, we rejoice that you are with us. That your presence is with us. What an incredible gift. And so God, we ask now that you would help us to examine our hearts. Help us to consider our ways that we might bring glory to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.